Well, welcome to Evening Tea Time. That's right, Miss Liz is back. And you know how it goes. If you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, run on over, click the subscribe, ring that little doorbell, and you'll be notified when all these tea times are live. And you can check all the old tea times from all season one, two, three, four, and this year five. I want to thank everybody for joining me this afternoon for an incredible tea time and all your support and all that as well. Tonight, I have John E. McLaughlin here, and we're going to talk about, uh, what are we going to talk about? I'm having a mind freeze right now. <laughs> we talked in the back, and I I just lost it. Well, we're going to get the disclaimer. We're going to get John in here. Miss Liz is going to figure out where Miss Liz was supposed to be going with that. It went out the window, out the door. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about John's book where you can do damn near everything, uh, anything. Uh, and then we're going to share his cup of tea with you tonight. So it's going to be thoughtfulness and energy and adaptability. So grab your tea, grab your coffee, grab a glass of wine, sit down, grab your families, and let's have a good, strong cup of tea together. So the disclaimer for Miss Liz's Tea Time Live Show. Miss Liz, myself, is going live using StreamYard. Before leaving a comment, please grant StreamYard permission to see your name at StreamYard.com. Please be advised that the content brought forward for any Tea Time show hosted by myself, Miss Liz, is always brought forward in good faith. However, may bring forward dialogues and opinions that are not representative of my platform. The facts and information are perceived to be accurate at the giving time of airing. All Tea Time guests and audience participants are responsible for using their good judgment In taking any action that may relate to their discussion. The content brought forward may include discussions for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to know that the show is engaging in discussions, forms only to offer, inspire awareness and connection, and is not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about the disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, Miss Liz, through my email at bookingmissliz at gmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in tonight's show in any aspect, I, Miss Liz, welcomes you. And should you decide that the show is not made for you at this time, I respect that choice and we'll see you at a later show at a later date and time. And again, all tea times are done on Thursday, 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If it's not a Thursday, it's a surprise tea time or a rescheduled tea time or a guest coming back for a second cup of tea. So now a little bit on my guests. And then we're going to get John in here and we're going to share some tea. So John McLaughlin is a former armor par trooper who has served across the U.S., Europe, and both Iraq and Afghanistan. After, begin, after beginning his career in intelligence, he attended law, law school at the University of Virginia and became a JAG officer in the D.C. National Guard, where he was mo mobilized after the insurrection attempt on January 6, 2021. His writing background includes work as a journalist, communist, colonist, speech writer, and editor, along with teaching as an adjunct, 
adjuncting professor at the University of Virginia in Maryland. His mission now is to help others develop as the military has helped him. John currently lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, the artist M.K. Bailey, and several video game consoles. Consoles. There is a hidden side of the military behind the stories of leadership and valor in a distant culture that promotes personal growth and development in how to deal with damn near anything. The part, part of Trooper Guide to Life, John McLaughlin, shows how this culture can benefit anyone. So I'm going to get John in here. We're going to spill some tea. And Miss Liz is going to figure out where she was going at the beginning of the show. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now I can I can talk about whatever I want now since you didn't tell the people we were going in a particular direction. We can just do whatever. <laughs> right. We just fly fly with the wind. I uh, I don't know, man. I just had like a blank moment. I think I just zoned out. I wasn't even sure where I was going. Uh, don't even worry that. about it. So, John, I want to start off how I do all the tea times. Who was John as a little guy and who is John now? Oh, as a little guy, uh, a ball of precocious energy. I don't know if anyone ever tells an adult that they were a terrible child. So, you know, you got to take the positive stuff with a little bit of a grain of salt. But apparently I was not shy about chatting up strangers and uh, taking little adventures. And not that has not changed. I try to be a little more uh, thoughtful about the chatting up strangers part. But otherwise, the, the energy is more or less still there. I used to be blonde as a kid. That's probably the right. Yeah, I saw a picture of me. I was like, who is this? I'm an only child. So I was like, well, who's this picture of? Aren't not a lot of other kids. There should be pictures up in this house, uh, but it was me, blonde, with curly hair uh, at a very young age. All the way until I was like two or three, I think. It, it was it lasted a while. But yeah, that was that was young me, and current me is a more, hopefully, thoughtful and uh, subtle version of the same ball of energy that I was back then. Well, that's good. And the reason that I asked that question is who you were as a little guy and who you are now, right, is because sometimes it brings you into who you are as an adult. You know, uh, if, if you're silent as a child, you usually have a voice when you get older, uh, you know, so it, I always like to dig a little deep into the cup and see who the little person is and who the that's fun. Is. I, I have not been asked that one before. So I appreciate the, the original question, especially to open up. Yeah, well, that's a Miss Liz question. That's uh, Miss Liz has that. I'm, I'm going to trademark that question, I think. <laughs> right, well. So, John, let's get into your journey. I want to, uh, the journey of being a part trooper, and then I want to get into the January 20, uh, January 6th, a little bit on that as well. Sure. And all that. So, yeah, sh shoot away. I'm going to give you all the right. stage. Well, speaking of disclaimers, I, I can't let you out disclaimer me. Um, you know, it's a good time if disclaimers have to be put out beforehand. Um, I, since we are going to get, sounds like in the, that, the January 6th stuff, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Department of Defense, the government, anybody but me. So just putting that out there in case we do end up chatting about those events. So my story broadly is of someone who joined the military to fill a lot of gaps in their development and who it was a surprise to most people I knew that I was joining. It went very, very well. In fact, joining was less difficult than leaving. And not because of a lot of the things that people hear when veterans leave the military. I, I was lucky that the GI Bill, I got into a great school, I got a good job, that all worked out fine. It was the personality traits that had worked well, and not just in the military, but as a paratrooper, as a, as a pretty 
pretty uh, gung-ho part of the military, weren't personality traits that were appropriate, at least nearly as often in the civilian world. So that's what prompted me to write the book, was it took me a few years to realize the lessons I had learned in the military and how rarely those lessons were taught elsewhere. There's a lot of value there. I did not do a good job for a while of bringing that value to anyone because I was just too judgmental. And I didn't really think enough about why people were coming at things the way they were. I just thought about the fact they were. And as I started to get a little, a little more comfortable, a little bit uh, more uh, thoughtful about the environment I was in and how it shaped the people I was around, I started to realize, okay, there's some specific things here that are missing that the military provides. And they're not about combat, they're not about physical danger, they're not about heroism or even leadership. And I, I respect all my fellow veterans who write books about those things. Uh, but this isn't about leadership. When I say this, my book, my the reason I'm here tonight, the reason I do this in addition to my day job is because the, these are lessons about looking inwards and developing yourself, not about being in charge of other people. So having gone through that process, I wrote a book that boils those lessons down into five specific traits that I think the military, particularly paratroopers, do a unique job of developing in people and tried to sprinkle in some lessons that would be useful to anyone. So how did you get the title of that book? I don't know. <laughs> it was what, what That's realized, two people today. I, I asked Richard the same thing about his book. And he's like, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, a little light profanity. I, I cannot cuss nearly as much as I want to. And I've got, it, it's popping into my brain less than it did. But when I first both was in the military and when I got out, I'm still in part-time, by the way. Um, so my brain goes to profanity a lot. And I have learned that to sprinkle it in instead of it having to be the main ingredient, so a little bit of that in the title, but I think the main thing was what I realized was that the sort of the bottom line of what I was talking about was the military teaches you to cope very well with things. But if you say coping, people think it's about trauma, about something already having gone wrong, but nothing has to go wrong yet. It's coping with any challenge and you got a daily challenge. So that's why I went with the title I did because while these skills are applicable, if you're feeling down, if you've, if you've caught a, caught a loss in life, you know, it, they're not only or even mainly applicable then. They're applicable when things are going well or when things are going okay and you'd like them to be going better. I like that you brought that in, John, because a lot of people, as soon as they hear the word cope, it, they, they go right to trauma, right? Right. Yeah, understandably. That's how it's usually used. Uh, but, you know, you can cope with any situation, even if it's just, um, even if it's not something that causes stress or is going to put you in a financial hole or something like that, maybe you want to change where you work and your job is fine. You know, you're paying the rent, maybe you're saving some, everything's going okay, but you would like to take on the challenge, an optional challenge. Not, you're not playing defense. This, these skills are also applicable for that. So John, we have a question here. What is JAG? JAG, I, you know, acronyms besides profanity, that's the second most common cr crutch that we use. Uh, JAG stands for Judge Advocate General, which is the hilariously over-the-top title that somebody a long time ago decided to give army lawyers. It's an army lawyer, but judge we're, we're not judges. Most of us aren't generals. We are advocates, so one out of the three is accurate for most of us, but it's the shorthand term that we use in the military, or specifically in the army, to describe military lawyers. Now, is that just a, 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 an acclimate that's used in the United States, or is that used around the world? Uh, that's a United States thing. Most military acronyms don't travel. Okay. Most of the stuff, and that's something I've had to learn. I was stationed in Europe for a large part of my full-time military career, and we got to work with, I was stationed in Italy, so we worked with Italians. Also worked with the Brits uh, a fair amount, spent a couple months there. And 
yeah, you have to assume it's, it was, it should have been a preview of the lesson I needed to learn when I got out, which is you can't assume other people know where you're coming from. And it's easy to be misunderstood, whether it's professionally with an acronym or personally with a comment on something, if you're not thinking about the context and what other people won't automatically understand. So no, JAG is a US only thing to my knowledge. It may, it may pop up here and there, but it's not a universal term. Yeah, because I wasn't sure if I was doing it right, if it was tag or jag, and I had to actually look it up. And I was, I'm a, I'm a Canadian, so. <laughs> well, no, you, hey, your, your partners, allies, friends, the uh, no tag is a yet another acronym we use, which is not worth getting into. But um, yeah, my, my bad about it. I thought it's one of things. I think I've spelled this stuff out in various places. I probably have not. It's good for me to go through once in a while and be like, oh no, that acronym is still in there. You can't assume everyone knows what that means. So, John, what got you into the lawyer? Well, the main thing was the, the U.S. government passed this law called the GI Bill, which was an echo of a law passed after World War II to give returning service members a uh, chance at an education. Because I love the military. I've had an amazing time. I think that it is a great fit for a wide array of people. But it is disruptive to a normal life plan. And by that, I mean high school, college, job, or high school, job, if you're not going to go to college. So the GI Bill is designed to take people who have gone a different path and may not be applying for school at the same time, haven't gone along the same road, and give them a, an easier time of making college happen. So for me, I'd already gone to undergrad. So for me, it was about grad school, and in my, particularly for me, law school. Originally, I was going to go to med school, and then I looked up how long that took. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just go to law school instead. Maybe I don't want to start a new career like 20 years from now, which is what it felt like getting out of the Army. So... It was an opportunity given to me by both the U.S., the law, the GI Bill, and then the school I got into. I had to get into a good enough school for it to be worth not earning a paycheck for three years. And I got to a school called the University of Virginia, which is one of, and in some ways, the best law school we have. And it, it, it was a wonderful experience. So I was very fortunate that they let me in. And yeah, they were, they were gracious enough to understand that my undergrad grades that I got when I was 18 to 21 maybe didn't reflect who I was as a 30-year-old coming out of the military because they were terrible. <laughs> um, but luckily, we have standardized tests to balance out grades for those of us who maybe did not have the best undergrad grades. So how long did it take you to do your training and all that for for a lawyer? Uh, law school in the U.S. is three years, which it doesn't really Oh, that's not do. bad. Yeah. No, it's not. Again, the contrast to med school was dramatic and allowed me to get out and work again in a decent amount of time. But no, it's it's... Honestly, one of the, so being in law school was the genesis of the book. Cause I was like, I'm a student again. This is phenomenal. This is great. You know what I'm doing 3 PM this afternoon, whatever I want. Like as long as I'm not sitting in class, like the flexibility was amazing after having a day job, but I was surrounded by a lot of people who were smart, who were good with people, good socially, nice people, like checked all the boxes and were terrified. They were terrified of everything. And I'm like, why you all don't know how good you are and how good you have it. And my response then was to just be really judgmental. My response now is to think about why they, why were they feeling all this pressure? Where did it come from? And how could we relieve some of that? And at the time, I didn't really uh, think about how those forces worked. Because for me, I was like, this is, this is fantastic. You know, it's, yeah, you work a lot, but you know where else you work a lot? A job. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> right? Wasn't really. Oh, I don't know. A lot of people go to work, but don't work. <laughs> okay, true. I'm, I'm, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt when I say some of these things. So uh, John, what, what age were you when you went to military school? Uh, I, um, when I first joined the military, I it was yeah. right after undergrad. So I signed up when I was 22. It was after 9-11. And then I, it, 
for reasons not worth getting into, I wait. I had to wait until my school slot became available because some army schools they're short. They run them every two months, so you don't have to really wait for the next the next ski lift to come by to pick you up and take you where you're going. Some of them, like my the school I went to, because I learned Arabic, was an Arabic linguist in the army. Oh. It's 72 weeks long. Now they're running more than one at a time, so you don't have to wait 72 weeks, but you have to wait a decent amount of time. So I signed up when I was 22, went to basic training, the initial training course that you go to when I was 23. Wow. And what has that taught you about yourself? It taught me that I was old uh, at 23. I didn't realize it. It's all relative when it comes to age and experience and personality traits sometimes. You know, in the land of the 18-year-olds, the 23-year-old is king, or at least is old, is wise. Luckily, it was more, they treated me more wise than old because 23 is still not old, even relatively speaking. But the it taught me a lot about, that was my first, the best thing about the military is you will meet people you would have never met normally. Because we, we bring in people from everywhere. We had people who were every type of personality from every part of the country, any type, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, your quiet people, your, your showboaters, everybody. Everybody was there. So it was a good chance for me to meet people I would have never met before and really learn to respect people uh, on a level. I didn't disrespect them before. I didn't know them. I didn't think about them at all. But then, you know, the my bunkmate in basic training was the only 17 year old we had in america you have to sign a waiver your parents have to sign a waiver for you to go into the military at 17. at 18 it's your choice you can just do your thing 17 you got to get a waiver from your parents he was the only person in our entire company which was a hundred and something people who was 17. so he was and he was super quiet he was scared of everything and i was assigned to be his battle buddy by chance and that was a learning experience for me to get to kind of mentor somebody and to help them get through the process successfully. So I was only 23 when I joined, but it was it was more experienced than almost everyone. We had one guy who was coming back after having left the military, but besides him, and he was in his mid thirties. So he was, he was in a completely different level than the rest of us. So, but among everyone else, I was one of, if not the oldest at 23. Wow. And it, 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 it is a learning experience because you do, it's like a pot of tea, right? You put all those different flavors and blends in and you just never know what's going to come out of it. So what, uh, what three memories do you have of that time? So the first, first one I'll throw out involves that same person I just mentioned, the 17 year old. So in order to keep things organized, you can do certain things at certain time in basic training. Like there's, here's the time for everyone to go take a shower. Here's the time for everyone to do laundry. So he tried to do laundry outside of that time, which you're not supposed to do. So his laundry ended up in a tree. Drill sergeants sometimes have very uh, evocative ways of showing you that you have done something wrong. So he was crestfallen by this, but you know, it takes a village. So we got, hey, who's the best tree climber here? And it's some guy who grew up in the woods and just climbed the trees like his entire <laughs> life. So he goes up and starts climbing the tree and gets the guy's laundry down. And it was a, it was a team building experience because everybody, he wasn't trying to be lazy. He just was, he, he was being unorganized. And while it seems silly, you can't necessarily, um, the military is an interesting mix of working as a team, but learning to have initiative. And people understandably get the idea that you are sort of a robot, that you do what you're told. But that's true for the very, 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 very first part of your career and almost never afterwards, because oh. they're teaching you very basic skills. And then you go on and you start having responsibilities on your own. And then it, the amount of autonomy you can get quickly is kind of amazing. So that's first memory is the laundry in the tree. It's a pretty big tree. 
this wasn't like a jump up and maybe you can get your laundry down tree. This was uh, we had to recruit somebody who did not have a fear of heights to go up there and get it. Oh, so it was a tall, tall tree. Yeah, it was. I was it was I was impressed with the throw. I don't know if the drill sergeants had to throw it more than once or if they're just they're just so used to throwing laundry into trees that they know exactly how much force it takes to hit a particular branch <laughs> or like a particular pair of pants. So did, did you want three memories from basic training or three from the military period? Give me three from the whole time. Oh, from the whole time. All right. So the we'll do some time travel here. The second one, I'll, I'll zoom forward quite a bit. And, and this is after I've been in for about seven years and I am in training and I break my elbow in a training course and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm mixed mad and sad. And I'm, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a long distance from home and where I'm stationed, you can't have the, the elbow surgery I need. So I'm gonna have to stay there for a while and blah, blah, blah. So I'm feeling pretty, pretty sorry for myself. And I'm sitting there and then I hear the nurse shout, Clear bed five, broken femur. And I was like, you know what I can do right now? Walk, walk anywhere I want. <laughs> walk to the bathroom, walk, get some food, walk, walk, walk. So it was one of those things where you you never want to minimize somebody's suffering or um, the bad time they're having because somebody else is suffering worse, right? People need to be allowed to have those bad feelings. But it does help process them relatively quickly when you are so immediately confronted with somebody who has it way worse than you. So yeah, I was very fortunate to have that kind of perspective check and end up changing my career, changed my, um, my goals. Uh, but it was a very, very important moment. And then the third moment would be, we'll do arriving in Italy for the first time. Okay. So after my first contract was up, you have a choice. You re-enlist to stay in the military. You can go, you know, good job. You're good. Have a nice life. I wanted to stay and I wanted to go to Europe specifically and I wanted to be a paratrooper. So I called up the, the HR department equivalent that we have and I said, hey, can I make this happen? They said, yes, we're sending you out to Europe. Excellent. So I get off the plane in Italy and I'm at baggage claim waiting for my stuff. And, you know, it's a little overwhelming, but exciting at the same time. And I'm like, why are those two guys arguing with each other? Why are those two guys arguing with each other? Why is it? Oh, this is just how they talk here. Like, <laughs> nobody's actually angry with anyone. They're just, they're all in each other's faces. And the personal space difference is so dramatic that if people did that here or in Canada, they'd be ready to fight. And they're just, they're just talking about anything. So it was, it was immediate, like cold water bath, a little shock to the system about just how different the culture was. And I came to absolutely love it there. Italy is my speed. Um, I don't need things to be that organized. I don't mind kind of making it up as you go along. And Italy is a make it up as you go along kind of country, by and large. They've gotten better. But yeah, so those are three memories. The 17-year-old in basic training, breaking my elbow and being sad, but realizing it could be worse. And then that first time I set foot in Italy with the army and the culture shock and the, the, the type of experience I was lucky enough to have the military uh, expose me to. So, John, how many transfers did you have in your lifetime? So the the first part of your military career, you bounce around a little bit as you finish your initial set of schools. Once that happened, and in those places, you know, you don't really get off the base much. You're a junior soldier. You're not really emotionally connected to those places. So did I technically live in Missouri for two months and change? Yes. Have I seen anything outside of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is known as Fort Lost in the Woods? That's how much is going on there? No. So 
two big transfers. One, I went to the basin. I went to first, I went to a base in the middle of the country where there's a unit called the 101st Airborne, which has a storied history in American military. Went there, went to Iraq, came back. That's when I made the Italy uh, leap and went out there. And then they made me leave Italy. And I was like, you know what? I can't do, I can't live in the middle of nowhere anymore. <laughs> like, a, it doesn't fit my personality. I have to, I was, I was having a great time, but it, I'm very fortunate you can do the military part-time and live where you want, more or less, with some, as long as you want to do some traveling here and there. So that was it. So as far as military careers go, I got to live in some very nice places, and then I got out. <laughs> and then I live, now part-time, I can live where I want to. And it, it's, the amount of flexibility is remarkable. So are you able to move around now? Because you're still part and part, partly in it, right? Yes. So without getting into too much admin stuff, yes, you do have flexibility. Now you would, you have a choice. Now, one of the five traits that I talk about in the book is adaptability, right? And in the military, that's something things change so frequently, whether it's people and places, it's something you have to be prepared for. What that means for me now in the part-time side of the military is usually you are assigned by states. So or for me, Washington, D.C., so a state-ish thing. And if I wanted to live somewhere else, I would either have to change the unit that I was in or I'd have to travel to Washington, D.C. occasionally to do my my occasional duty. So, it, you know, you can have it either way. You can stay where you're at and have that predictability or you have to be adaptable enough to travel here because you like the job you have here, but you want to live elsewhere. Well, that makes sense why you gave me that word for your tea. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that was I was amazed at one point. So the Myers-Briggs test, I'd heard of it, but never took it. I go to law school It's part of the little onboarding process, for lack of a better word, little uh, orientation process. Like, hey, you can take this test for free. It's like, awesome. I've heard about this. It's free. Why not? So I take it and I sit down with the counselor and they go through the first three and it's this, that, that, not a big deal. The last one, they just kind of look at me and she says, without any context, you're going to have an interesting time in law school. That great. What kind of interesting are we talking about? So I am all the way on the side of that. The last one is perceiving versus judging. I don't know why they the, the terms don't really match the, the the trait. The trait is how much of a schedule, a plan, a predictable, regular thing do you like versus do you like to bounce around, um, you know, build it as you fly it, wing it type of thing. And I'm all the way on the ladder. I like improvising. I don't mind it at all. I've come to appreciate a schedule more, but it's never going to be my default. Everyone in law school is the other way. They all love, they all love, and obviously I'm generalizing a bit, but the overwhelming social norm is predictability to the point where one of our professors is like, hey, in two months, we are not having class this day. We're moving it to a day. I've got to figure out when. And somebody in my class is like, oh, I'm like, it's two months from now. Do you, do you care of your class on like a random Tuesday, like two months from now? Uh, and I knew this person. I'm like, you don't have kids. You're not married. Like, you're not taking care of your sick parents. There's no reason you can't do something else on a Tuesday. But the 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 lack of adaptability within that culture, and then I learned more widely. Because at first, when you're at law school, I'm like, is this just a law school thing? And some of the quirks are either more likely at law school, but most of it are not. Most of them are just universal things, and there's a gap that's left in what schools and workplaces teach, which is fine, because they're not designed to teach you everything. But that gap can really cause problems for people or it, it can keep people from becoming their absolute best is probably a better way to put it. Even though it doesn't cause any serious problems, it can hold people back from being even better. And adaptability was the A in T because it really stood out to me as something that was both central to the military experience, but more importantly, was something that would really benefit people to work on a little bit more purposefully. 
So a lot of the inner traits needed to be worked on. Yes, absolutely. Again, these folks were smart. They were nice people, um, uh, good socially. Uh, you couldn't really ask for anything else, but they were raw. They were very, very raw. And in law school, they were getting, as almost all colleges give you, a technical education. And that's true. You can be air-conditioned repair person. It's still a technical education. Most of the character development that comes in college comes accidentally from meeting different people. But depending on where you're at, what kind of school you're at, what kind of things you're studying, what kind of person you are, that may be hard to do. You certainly don't have to do it if you don't want to. If you want to find the three people most like you and hang out with them for four years, you can do that. Join a fraternity, a sorority, an interest group, this chess club, or whatever it is. You know, and the military does a good job of introducing you to people where you find things in common. Not that you have to force it, but it's not obvious. So usually when you are first drawn to somebody as a friend, as a coworker, whatever the context, it's because you can immediately tell that you have something in common with them. Whereas in the military, you spend so much time around people that these things can emerge and you can realize that you have more in common with a wider array of people than you thought you did. And there's a meme that, that goes around sometimes it's called, and it says at the top says military friend groups to be like, and it's four people that look completely different. There's like a very clean cut guy, a guy with a bunch of tattoos um, and like two other, like a country guy with, his, with the cowboy hat and everything, just people that look like they would never hang out normally, but in the military, you do that all the time. It's just normal. So it's a very valuable experience to spend time around people. And don't get me wrong, you don't like everyone. I joke, I don't call it BFF, I call it BPR, best possible relationship, right? There's some people you just, I, you know, they didn't like me, I didn't like them, but we got to the best version of not liking each other that you could possibly get to because we saw each other enough to see what each other were good at and could respect each other on that level, even if we didn't click on a personal level. Well, I think it's like that in life, right? Is we don't connect with everybody, but it, it we still have the mutual respect of understanding, you know, one another. So the five traits that you put in the book, John, what are the five traits? So the first one is self-awareness. And the reason for that is it is it change takes effort, but it takes a lot less effort if you know what you should be changing. Right? The first if you pull up Google Maps, the first thing you need to know is where you are, right? Because finding directions to where you want to go otherwise is going to be a lot harder. So self-awareness is helped in the military because, as I mentioned, you spend a lot of time around people. So the increasing pressure to curate yourself, to put a nothing wrong with wanting to put your best foot forward, but you shouldn't pretend it's the only foot you have. So you're going to stress people out doing that all the time. I'd see it in, you see it in workplaces when you know, a moment comes in a meeting or in a classroom when it comes time to raise your hand. The, the stress that comes from that can be overwhelming. And the military teaches you that you don't have to do that, that you are a, that a more holistic view is both good for you because you have a more honest understanding of where you're at and it's good for others because then they can give you honest, accurate feedback. And without that feedback, because self-awareness is really two things. One is your view of yourself. The other is knowing, being aware of how other people view you. They're not necessarily the same thing. You know, somebody introverted can, and somebody who, who doesn't have self-confidence can know that other people respect them and like them and think they're good, but they can still feel like they're not good at something. Despite knowing what everybody, accurately knowing that everybody else thinks highly of them, they may not think highly of themselves. And obviously the opposite can be true too. People can think they are amazing at things and ignore every single data point showing them that they actually suck. So it's both of those things together. So the first trait is self-awareness. And then you want me to go ahead and run through each one? Sure. Give me a little right. bit of, and then everyone can go out and grab a copy. 
right? So thank you. Thank you for that. I, you know, I'll get into the book writing process after the five lists. I got to be careful about tangents. It's another weak point of mine. So the second trait is initiative because it is all good and well to know where you are, where you're at, and where you want to go, but actually taking steps to get there is difficult. And the military and paratroopers are very good at making decisions with incomplete information and understanding that that's inevitable and trying to identify that point where you're doing more damage by waiting than you would get from gathering more info, from waiting for a perfect time. There is almost never a perfect time and encouraging that initiative. And then if it's not the right call, if you're self-aware, you can learn from that. You can take that feedback and be like, you know what? I made that made that move because it was time, took that job. Some of the the jobs I took after I left the army, I may or may not have, I, there were a lot of good things about them. They may, weren't necessarily the right decision. And you wanna, but it was necessary for me at the time to take the leap. So you yeah. take the leap and then you move into the next trait, which is being adaptable. And once you're self-aware enough to know where you should go, you take the initiative to go there, then you're adaptable enough to realize, okay, I learned something by taking that initiative, by making that jump. Now I need to apply that knowledge. And there's all kinds of biases. One of the things that was important to me writing the book, there are a couple of things that were important. One of which was, is this backed by the research? Because otherwise I'm just a guy with an opinion and some stories. There's nothing wrong with that. You can get yeah. a pretty good book out of an opinion and some stories. But when you're telling people, hey, you should do this, I at least didn't want to be openly contradicted <laughs> by the actual research done by social scientists into this. So I, I put a lot of effort into reading the research and making sure that my anecdotal knowledge, however, you know, 20 years in the military is not bad, but it's not the same thing as, you know, it's still one person's experience. So I went through it and I learned about a lot of the biases that prevent people from adapting. Um, just to name one is outcome bias. It's when something, it's when you get a good result, so you assume that, that you made a good decision or the opposite. Something doesn't work out, so you assume you made a bad decision. When, for good or bad, the result might have been out of your hands or at least significantly out of your hands. And either you got away with something or you're like, I should not have done that. <laughs> it worked out, but I should not do that again. The way I do things or the opposite. So learning to be aware of that bias is something the military is good about and something that can help anyone improve how they adapt themselves to future challenges. Fourth trait is efficiency. We talked a little bit about this before we went live. Yeah. But it, I was, I, I thought I, my dad was in the military before I was born briefly. So not something I grew up with, not something I had any first or secondhand knowledge of. So I go in, I'm expecting what everybody else is expecting, right? Lots of yelling, lots of intensity. There's moments of that, but there's strategic moments. They're, they're done for a reason at a time. What I did not expect was for my drill sergeant basic training to tell me, work smart, not hard. I was like, did I just have a drill sergeant tell me to work not hard? I thought hardcore was the name of the game here. No, it was all about understanding. You try to throw a punch as hard as you can, you're probably going to fall on your face. It's all about exerting the right amount of effort at the right time. And you know, not every leader in the military is, has all these traits, to be honest. We've got idiots like especially any organization with a million people is going to have some idiots in it it's just inevitable right you're gonna have some scumbags right we try to minimize it but it's not going to be zero but by and large we are good at realizing that best case scenario you're going to stay in the military 20 years we got to pace ourselves you don't want to burn people out so when it comes to looking inwardly you don't want to burn yourself out there may be moments where you have to sprint to a particular finish line because you have a big deadline coming up or something else out of the out of the ordinary but it can be really tempting to 
always see the world that way because there's if you are looking around there's always something to strive for so you got to realize you will burn yourself out if you are not efficient about how you exert yourself and then the last of the five traits is something i call insistence and it kind of brings them all together uh, my metaphors they're like olympic rings they're they're different but they're they're interlocking and the last one the central one is insistence and that is learning to enforce boundaries and set standards because the world will run you over and people won't even do it intentionally there's there are obviously people who will take because they they're selfish sometimes people just don't understand the burden they're putting on you professionally or personally and you have to be able to set boundaries you have to be able to do that and the military is good about having both written rules right we got a million regulations on things like how you're supposed to do stuff but the most important things in the military are not written down or if they are written down they're written down in a sort of aspirational way nobody pulls out the leadership reg every day and is like what do i do right the, the further you get in, into being senior ranking yeah you do refer to that stuff more often but the bedrock of things is not written down it is all about learning to set standards and then hold people accountable when they don't meet those standards now you don't have to hold them accountable aggressively you don't have to become some like swashbuckler who calls people out the moment that they do wrong don't have to do that it doesn't have to be dramatic in fact that can be counterproductive tiny little nudges can really help people one of my favorite bits of research i read for the whole book was about this part where it shows if there is an accountability system in place in a workplace in a group of friends anywhere it doesn't have to get used in order to change the behavior of people who would otherwise break the rules. If they just know it's a possibility that they're going to be kept in check, that they're going to be called out for, for breaking boundaries, for, for failing to meet standards, even the possibility of that happening is enough to change people's behavior. Now, it's not going to change everyone's all the time, but you don't. all you have to do is show that boundaries exist, and you will at least note that they exist when somebody tries to habitually line step. And it is surprising how little investments, a little bit of short-term awkwardness is required for long-term improvement in almost all categories. So you take the L in the moment. If it's an L because you're shy and you don't want to bring up a boundary or because you bring one up and somebody steps over it anyway, which is going to happen, you have to take that short-term awkwardness as a, a worthy investment into long-term improvement for both you and the environment you live in. So, John, what got you into writing the five trades? Like, I know that there's other books out there, but what was it about this book that was pushing you to say, like, let's get this out there? The first thing was realizing the gap that existed. And the second thing was realizing I could, I had experiences and had been taught things by people that could fill the gap. And the third was realizing that nobody had gone down this road, at least not the same way. Because besides... I didn't want to write a book that was openly contradicted by everybody who'd studied these things. I also didn't want to write one that had already been written. So did a lot of research. Obviously, there's a lot of veteran stories because these are worthwhile stories to be told. But nobody had necessarily angled it like this. Now, I went to both Iraq and Afghanistan. Those are experiences that mean a tremendous amount to me and I'll carry with me forever. They're not what I use in day-to-day -day life. They are not the things that people are trying to kill you all the time. The day-to-day -day life, you need more than a book. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, but for most people's normal problems, it is other things about the military that can help them. I'm trying to give people a toolkit, not in, I want to inspire people to make those day-to-day -day changes, not to rally from the depths of a truly tragic or difficult moment in their lives. That is not this book. This book is, hey, I would like to improve 
how things go, my day-to-day life, my job, my relationships. I'm not in the worst place I've ever been, but I'm not in the place I wanna be. How can I get there? So that's what drove me to write the book is realizing that these lessons weren't taught elsewhere, realizing that school was really a technical education and jobs are always busy trying to accomplish whatever that business or office needs to accomplish. They may or may not be invested in you as an individual trying to develop you so you'll be a, a more fulfilled person five, 10 years from now. That's rare. The military p- treats everybody like they're going to be there 20 years. Because even if you leave after three, we can't run the risk of you sticking around for 20 and we didn't make you any better. <laughs> so we have to assume everybody's going to stay. It's like giving people a car. If you know you might own this car for 20 years, you're going to take care of it, right? You have to plan for that long term. The military invests in people like that because we are going to keep some of you for a long, or some of you are going to stay for a long time. So we got to treat all of you like you're going to be here a long time. So we got to invest in you. That's not something most workplaces can do. So realizing that gap was really the first step that led me down the road to the book. So what's your target audience with the book, John? My, my target audience is white collar professionals or pe- students on their way to becoming them. Because the idea is that it's especially offices that don't develop traits in this way. I think you're going to find more of it in blue collar professions where you're going to have more people in close contact with each other for long hours all the time. So my goal, my, not to say I don't think people in those situations couldn't benefit from it. I'm not going to tell anybody to not read the book, but the tar- you got to have a target audience. It can't be everyone. Right? Just, you can't, can't, well, you can say it's for everybody, but it's not read. actually for everybody. People who can read. That's my target audience. <laughs> people with, who can read who have 15 or 20 bucks, whatever it costs right now. The, uh, no, it's, uh, it is more about people who've gone through that college to office pipeline and have missed out on some things. Neither of those steps was designed to teach or does teach. So do you go into schools or classrooms or anything with the book and, and, and kind of talk about the traits, John? Yes and no. So one of the tricky things is not all organizations like being criticized. So <laughs> that's so true. without dropping any names, I've had, I've had schools, have been, by schools, I mean colleges so far, I haven't gone to any high schools. I've had colleges that have invited me in to speak and it's gone well. And I've had some that were very polite, but it was very clear that they're like, we don't like that you say that there's a gap in what we do. We think we, because I, I poke what I think is light, loving fun at some of the more um, highfalutin aspects of college, all the Latin mottos and all the, um, one of the colleges has like uh, a Latin word for Texas <laughs> in its motto. I was like, I don't think, I don't think people who spoke Latin in Texas overlapped, but like, okay, so you clearly just made this up because it sounds fancy. So kind of poking fun at that. And it's like, I understand why they do this, but can we, but let's be a little more down to earth about what people need to learn. Some schools are all about that. Some schools are not. So yes, I have gone to some schools, but I'm much more focusing on workplaces. I'm actually working with an HR consultancy who is interested in developing a three hour training version of the book. So that the, the 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 demo has been done. I'll be presenting that to them here shortly. So hopefully later this year, uh, I will be showing up at various workplaces, and, I, and I'll 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 redouble the college efforts, and maybe maybe I'll just hope they won't read the book, and that they just they just look at the three hour version, and uh, they're like this. Is, oh, I think this the title kind of gives them a, a a little. Oh, he's gonna be trouble. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's there's it there's a lot of controversy right now about what what how colleges should approach learning. How much do you want to expose people to rough edged ideas? 
That's what that's my literally just made it up now category for all the things that people may be uncomfortable with. Yep. Nothing people are more uncomfortable with than the idea that they're not good at something and getting comfortable with that and understanding some it's different for every person. Some people can be really hard on themselves. And one of the interesting things I learned in the research was drill sergeants spend an amazing amount of their time building people up. We always see them yelling because what makes good drama? What are you gonna put on the TV show? Yelling, a movie, yelling. Everyone, yeah. people don't yell at each other in most workplaces, right? So that's the thing that's different about basic training. But drill sergeants spend a lot of time building people up too. So you gotta be aware of when do you need to build yourself up, but also when are you skeptical of yourself with the understanding that you can improve. So learning to balance those things. That's why self-awareness is the first trait is getting that accurate picture of yourself so you can make because small adjustments can yield such big big rewards we talked about that uh, about the insistence trait but it's also true of self-awareness and the rest of the traits is on the one hand people can feel like it's a, it's a, a huge mountain to climb in order to reach this uh particular nirvana of being perfect or something you don't have to be perfect tiny amounts of improvement can yield massive results well and i think it's really important that we come in and say there is a gap you know we have to make people uncomfortable in order to get change, you know, but a lot of organizations and a lot of schools and systems and that don't like to be told that there's broken things or that there's a space. Right. So when people come in like yourself, John, and say, well, look, there's a gap. Let me let me come in and let me talk about the different traits and, and let's work together. So now you're working with the HR departments and all of that. So that that's getting you into the into the businesses and, and that. Now, the leadership developments that are in businesses to in today's world, how do you feel about that, John? It's good that they're trying and they should continue to. Um, one of the things I ran into in doing the research, because I you know, wanted to see how this went, was, okay, I'm saying a gap exists in business. Does it exist? What are they doing? Is it working? Mentorship programs are insanely difficult to do well. And they're, uh, at one point, I read a mentorship guide. It had like an 83-item checklist for a business. Just do these 83 things, and this program will go well, right? And it's it's difficult for several reasons. Mentoring is a specific skill. Are you going to train people on that skill, or are you just going to assume you've been here longer? You're in charge of people. You're a mentor now, right? Are you going to make it so everyone has to do it? Uh, what happens if the mentor and the mentee just don't get along? There are studies that show it can actively harm someone's career to be given a mentor who they don't click with. And all of a sudden, the the process is a potential danger. Who's going to participate in it if it's a potential danger? Right? A lot of people are trying to play it safe because the downside, you want to protect against the downside risk of losing your job a lot more than you care about necessarily being thought of better. Maybe there's a promotion in it, maybe there isn't. So I understand why people play it safe. So businesses, when it comes to leadership development, is leadership is about being in charge of other people, but it is difficult, not impossible, to be an effective leader if you are not effective at being self-aware. Because it, it can happen by chance. The right person gets in the right situation. Maybe they have a lot of technical expertise that overcomes the, the lack of personality traits that are good in terms of interpersonal interactions, right? But it's rare. And if anything, the research keeps showing that the whole, the brilliant jerk archetype, where it used to be this person's great at their job, but they suck when it comes to dealing with people, they're not worth it. Outside of incredibly specific fields, they're just not worth it. So I'm glad that businesses are trying. I want to help them try. But honestly, it is ultimately on the individual. You cannot expect an organization or an institution with a separate mission 
to fill this gap for you. And I want to get in there and, and it's been successful so far, getting in there and helping those organizations give people the tools, but it's not going to be a thing where that business forces you or measures it. You want to see it show up in the performance for what your job actually is. You're not going to get a separate score about it because then it runs into all those problems that you get with mentorship programs. So long-winded answer, but the, the efforts I've seen, mixed quality, admirable intent, but it's better to, I think, to go with the approach I'm doing of giving people the tools as individuals instead of trying to create a new bureaucracy within your business that is supposed to handle this and it's just a big drag on everyone's time and energy. Well, that's what I'm finding with a lot of organizations now. The leadership skills, are, it's like the leaders are not stepping, stepping up, right? And saying, you know what, let me step back because you can do this better. It's almost like in the military, right? If one, off, one soldier can do something better than the other one, you guys kind of highlight that one and say, you know what, when we go to battle, we're going to put this guy here because he's stronger in this skill, right? Than the other skill. That's, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up because people were terrified when I said I was going to join the army because they're like, you're way too much of an individual. You're way too sarcastic. You're going to get in trouble. And I only got in trouble sometimes. <laughs> and it was way less sometimes. than I thought. <laughs> because what happens is, is it was never, I, I had a lot of energy and I, I thought I had good ideas, but it was coming from a place of wanting to get stuff done. And that ethos, obviously, it takes refining. You got to be smart about how and when you do it. But that sarcasm had a place because ultimately it was practical thinking. It was about the task, the mission, the goal. It wasn't about um, appearances. So people were shocked at how little trouble I ultimately got in. So the mil and I mentioned that because what you said is true. The military is good about if somebody is good at something, saying, hey, Bob, you're good at this, and putting Bob front and center. And even if they don't have necessarily the rank, even if they don't have the um, the title, even if they you know don't have the formal things that are supposed to put them in a position, if you're good enough, if you're good at your job, you don't have to tell people about it. You don't have to go out of your way to, to promote yourself because it's another product of spending a lot of time around people. I'm going to figure out if you're good at your job if I see you eight hours a day. Yeah, You don't have to tell me. It's just going to be annoying if you feel the need to self-promote when we're around each other all the time. Most workplaces aren't like that, though. Maybe you see your boss once a day, twice a day, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending on what kind of job it is. Maybe you only see them in a certain context, a certain meeting where a certain type of interaction takes place, not something holistic. Maybe you're, maybe you're not a meeting person. Maybe you're not a dive-in-with-your-opinion person. Maybe you got other strengths that don't get seen as often. So it's about – that's what these tools – apologies to the sirens in the background – uh, one of the things is about self-awareness is understanding how you can complement the setup that you're in to show that you've got those skills. Because the military is very good at recognizing those skills in a practical way. And you want to take that ethos and apply it to your life the best that you can. And one thing that you also mentioned when you sent me uh, some information, John, is you talked about the stability and, su and success that the military has taught you. So for all the listeners out there, if they'd like to know about the stability of military, because it's like a lot of people get the understanding that there's a lot of screaming, a lot of drill sergeants, a lot of punishment, a lot of this, you know, because that's what society has told us that that is what movies have portrayed, but you have lived it. So you, you have the voice from the inside, right? You have so, maybe a drill sergeant in your life at all. Not yet. Not us yelling you just period for like 1% of your army career. It can vary based off what kind of career path you take. But for a tiny tiny for the rest of the time, we're just talking to each other like normal people with more profanity and more sarcasm. But otherwise like normal people. No like 
it is a, a flash in the pan and it's an effective and necessary one. But if anything, it's one the army is actually doing less and less of as time goes on. A lot of the drill sergeants, so there's this thing called the shark attack that used to happen in the military where they take a bunch of drill sergeants and do this very um, dramatic initial thing to sort of establish that you're in a new place now. They got rid of that. And they didn't get rid of it because there was a scandal or somebody died or somebody got sued or anything like that. They got rid of it because they realized it wasn't working because it was causing people to leave quietly. Ooh. It wasn't some spectacular breakdown, but people were getting the idea, as you mentioned, they're like, this is how it's going to be. I'm out. Forget this. When that's not how it was going to be. And it turns out that that was in the military because of Vietnam, because the old go to war, go to jail thing. People would be coming into the military back then who they were, they being the military, were worried we're going to literally try to take over, like commit crimes. Like, that's not a thing anymore. It hasn't been a thing for like 40 years, more than 50 years. And, but we still had that in place. So the military has realized, okay, not only was yelling a tiny percentage of your time in the military, even then they're like, it needs to be even tinier because it can be counterproductive when not happening at the right time. So the reason I use the word stability is the military teaches you to very much keep an even keel. And to take a step back for as long as you need and then take a step forward and make a decision when you need to. It's a good combination of those things. And that kind of inner stability allows you to be on a much more even footing when dealing with all the random crap that life is going to throw at you. I always try to tell people, like, try not to add difficulty. Life will bring enough difficulty on its own with all the, all the, the things that will happen. So something bad is going to happen to almost everyone. So don't make it worse. <laughs> if you can keep, if you can just not, it's funny, sometimes you'll see in sports, uh, an athlete will get a compliment like, oh, they're, they, they didn't make any mistakes. Like, okay, that's, that's the, that, that can get you a long way. And a lot of the, a lot of the self-help books I looked at, the development books, they want, they're like, you want to be a billionaire. You want to be a badass. You want to have a six pack. You want to be standing on top of a mountain you know, king of the world, like, okay, maybe, um, you know, all those things are fine, but it can discourage people from developing if they think that it's all about those extrinsic outward goals. Things are going to impress people because it is really all about getting yourself in the right place. And then all that stuff will come. I mean, maybe not the billions or the six pack, but like a lot of rewards will come if you can put yourself in a nice stable position where you are consistent and you're able to show up on a regular basis and put in a good solid performance and all the little situations that life throws at you, the next thing you know, you will find yourself uh, in a much more advanced place than you thought you were capable of getting. Well, I, you know, this conversation with you, John, I've learned a lot and I've learned, I've learned a lot about the military that I never even knew, uh, you know, because society and movies have really portrayed military as, oh, you know, we're going to put you in charge. It's like boot camp, right? They, they used to have like a show called boot camp for kids that weren't listening for juveniles and all that. But I mean, like you've given it a different perspective. You've, you've given my audience a different understanding of what military is and the work and all of that. And, in there as well. And you brought in some humor as well. So I really enjoyed that. Well, thank so, you. So John, what final message would you have for the audience out there and anybody that would like to get into the military? Um, well, okay. So two separate things. I try to tell people this is not a sales pitch for the military. In fact, a lot of the people who are come from the military, when they write a book, it's the book is basically pretend you're in the military, get up at 5am, 
do a million push-ups. Like you don't have to pretend that you're in the military to learn from it. So that's that'll be my takeaway is you don't have to pretend you're in the military to learn from it. There's these little strategies you can you can pick up that aren't the things that are in movies and TV shows because they wouldn't make for good movies and TV shows. Nobody wants to watch Maverick and Top Gun practicing in a flight simulator for like a thousand hours like, so he can keep his certification and fly still. Like, But learning to be consistent and learning to develop the five traits that we talked about is incredibly important. So yes, there's a hidden side of the military that people can learn from without having to be intense or live a completely different lifestyle. Development is absolutely possible on a more subtle and approachable level. Well, I really, so anybody that would like to get into the fields that you've gotten into, John, like, can they reach out to you? Can they talk to you? How can, yeah, absolutely. Can I encourage people... anyone to the, my website, which you have uh, graciously put in the corner of the screen, just my email is John at that address, my last name, which I have debated changing to something shorter. But uh, I'm not I'm not in danger of getting famous enough to need a shorter last name. So I'm just going to go with this one for now. But yeah, John at johnmclaughlin.com is where you can reach me. And if you look, uh, look in Amazon or go to your local bookstore, they should be able to order a copy of the book. It is How to Deal with Damn Near Anything, The Paratrooper's Guide to Life. It's there in the bottom right corner as well. Well, and I, I just like the title. Like, I think it's pretty cool. I was just like, what? We're going to talk about Okay, this and the title in itself just gets you engaged, right? It just gets you. So I don't know how you got the title. Like you said, you don't remember how, but I, I like it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank People you are welcome. You know, People are welcome to buy the book, read the title, and then put it down if they want. That's fine. There's good stuff inside the book too if they want to keep going. So John, you you gave me the word energy. We got a couple of minutes left here. I want to get into that word energy sure. because your energy is phenomenal. Like I, I I'm like I could have a conversation with you all night because it's enjoyable, right? The the engagement is there, and you know the just to lay back. Like I just feel like we're just sitting and having a cup of tea. Like in you know, uh, so John, why did you give me the word energy? Because it, it, a lot of times people struggle with things because of lack of energy. And a lot of times that lack of energy comes from fighting fights that don't need fighting or not fighting ones that do, where if you had taken that initial step to cut something off early, it wouldn't keep going and growing into a bigger and bigger problem. So I am energetic by default, right? And I recognize that that's how I am. And the advice is not, hey, everybody be like me, right? That's not useful advice. And the military doesn't do things that way because we have a million different types of people. And if we approach a development with that one size fits all stuff, it wouldn't work. But people can free up more energy by not worrying the insistence that last trade is really about this in a lot of ways of setting those boundaries, not letting people encroach past that and keeping that space for yourself. So you have that energy. You're not constantly dealing with other people's drama. Uh, and at one point I felt bad after I said this, this is a good example of development in my Arabic class. We had 10 people in my little section, right? Of a larger class. And they were from all the different services. We had Marines and Navy and army and air force. And a friend of ours, one of our classmates, we're all friends because we're there for so long comes in and says, how do you deal if you have, how do you deal with, if you have somebody in your life, you feel like is only honest with you when they're drunk. And I said, with no hesitation, I don't have people like that in my life. That's how I deal with it. And I, later I was like, I could have been a little more empathetic in how that was delivered, perhaps. <laughs> but it, allowing people like that in your life, in, yeah. it saps so much energy. And it, it's really unfortunate because sometimes you will think about, you will want the best version of a person to still be in your life, personally or professionally. 
But if that best version is only them 5% of the time, that's not who they are. And there's a, a great, I think it's a Maya Angelou quote where she says, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. So it can free up a lot of energy if you're not tilting at windmills and trying to change people who have zero interest in actually changing. Well, I love it. And I love how we're wrapping this up because I really love, uh, my, I, my tongue, I, I don't know, I, I must be getting tired. But I really want, I really want to thank you for that, John. But I really want to thank you for sitting and taking the time and reaching out to me and having you a part of Tea Time with Miss Liz. So if anybody would like to know more about Miss Liz, check out Miss Liz's website, www.misslizesteatime. And if you'd like to collaborate with Miss Liz or be a guest on Tea Time, and reach out to Miss Liz at my email at bookingmisslizz at gmail.com. Thank you again, John, for joining me. Thank you for all the supporters and listeners. I could not do this without you. And I will see everybody on Monday because we have a surprise Tea Time coming where we have girl power coming in, where we'll be talking about education and teen pregnancy and marriages. We want to prevent that. So we're going to bring some awareness to that. So Monday at 3 p.m. we have a surprise tea time coming. And then Thursday we have two more TEAs coming. So we have some strong teas coming in February. Check out the, the platform and you can see all of the guests that are coming. So again, join me on Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you, John, for joining me tonight. Thank you for all the listeners and the supporters. And thank you for the audience. And if you're watching a replay, please push hashtag replay and let me know where you're tuning in because I always like to know where you guys are coming in from. Until then, I will see everybody on Monday for our next TEA with Miss Liz.